Give ear to the word of God, Second Peter verses one, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Peter writes, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, and if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world, of the ungodly, and if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for uh, as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their uh, lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from, from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, if you've been here for a little while, uh, you probably know on the first Sundays of the month, uh, for a good bit of time, we were going through the Psalms one at a time, more or less. Uh, and for a number of months now, I've been going through on the first Sundays of the month on Communion Sundays, uh, the Ten Commandments, which we just read this morning from Exodus chapter 20, also found in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 6. And uh, what my practice has been so far, and I, I imagine, Lord willing, I'll be able to keep doing this, but I thought what we would do is take one Sunday, one first Sunday, go through the actual commandment itself. So we looked at uh, in the first Sunday of January, we looked at Exodus 20, verse 14, thou shalt not commit adultery. And I thought it, it might be good, and it's what we've been doing, is the week, the time after that, to go to another text that deals with the same subject, but not just the commandment itself. And so that's what we're doing this morning. We're looking at a second uh, passage in addition to Exodus 20, verse 14, that deals with uh, sexual immorality of some, of some kind. Um, we saw a number of weeks ago when we looked at Exodus 2014, uh, kind of borrowing from the shorter catechism that the, all the commandments require and forbid certain things. And the seventh commandment, that against adultery, uh, requires, it demands of us uh, chastity or purity in heart, speech, and action. And it also conversely forbids all sexual immorality in heart, word, or deed. And that's the same thing that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, you know, you, you've heard it said of old, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, what have you done? You've committed adultery. The law is spiritual. It reaches down even to the heart, not just the outward actions. Um, and I, if you were here a number of weeks ago when we went over that, that commandment in Exodus 20, uh, I made some kind of comment to the, to the extent that, in my uh, humble and not very important opinion, that I, the more I see what's going on in society around us, and even in the church in many places, the more I think the seventh commandment 
is it might be the most needful, they're all needful, but might be for our time uh, the most needful one for the church to recover a right grasp of if we're going to have our witness uh, be what it should be to the world uh, around us. Uh, and why do, I, why do I say that? Confusion, uh, confusion abounds on this issue, on this issue, and it, it, it abounds even in the church. Uh, and, and worse yet, sexual immorality seems to abound even among many professing Christians, and this should not be the case. Ephesians 5.3, the Apostle Paul there says, among other things, he says, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, he says, must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. It doesn't mean you can't talk about it. Otherwise, Paul couldn't have written what he wrote and I couldn't be preaching what I'm preaching. He's saying it, it should not be known among you. Our reputation should not be such that those things are associated with God's people. And yet we see local churches, even one such in, in Ramona, uh, even this past week, where they put out advertisements on Facebook and elsewhere uh, saying that they're going to have this certain day of the, of the week where they're flying, they call it their P flag. It stands for their pride flag. In a church, in a professing Christian church, uh, flying their so-called pride flags, uh, you wonder if they've read Genesis 18 and 19. Uh, and, and, you know, sometimes we can say, well, those are the liberal churches out there. You know, of course, they're going to do things like that. They shouldn't. But even among some Reformed and Presbyterian churches, we see people, pastors and others, uh, speaking of, of side B. If you don't know what that is, don't, don't look it up. Uh, side B, gay Christianity. And even, even saying that it's okay for pastors to be homosexual as long as they don't act on it. That is an actual thing being taught sometimes in PCA churches, and it should not be the case. So it's not just those churches out there. It's some uh, ostensibly reformed churches as well. And I'll say this, brothers and sisters, uh, if the Christian church is confused and compromising on these things, where in the world is the world to turn to find and hear the truth? If they're not going to hear the truth about a lot of things, including this, from us, where are they going to hear it? They're not. And that goes for a lot of things, especially the gospel, but it also goes for this as well. So I thought it might be uh, helpful and needful for us to look at another text of Scripture that deals with this issue uh, in particular, that we might be reminded of the clear teaching of the Bible. On these things, I, I have to say I originally was reading in my just my own personal reading in the Bible in Genesis, you know, with the new year rolling around and, you know, everybody tries to read through the Bible in a year and I don't know if I'll make it through in a year or not, but I found myself kind of not stuck on, but my mind was kind of stuck on Genesis 18 and 19. And I considered for a while, maybe I should preach that passage. It's awfully long. And so I thought, well, there's, it'll take half the sermon for me to read the text uh, and I'll, I'll just trust that, that some of you have read it. Many of you have read it before. We'll refer to it here and, and, uh, here and there. Uh, but I came to our text in Second Peter chapter 2, and I thought, well, this, this, this refers to the thing, kind of sums it up in many ways. And so I thought this might be good for us uh, to look at this text this morning. So uh, let's pray and ask God's blessing upon his word. And then <coughs> excuse me, we'll look at this passage uh, in, some, in some detail. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word. 
We thank you that you give it to us as a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. And we thank you that by your word you teach us what we are to believe concerning you about, about our God and our Savior and what duty you require of us. And Lord, we ask once again that you would fill us with your spirit, teach us your word, give us understanding into these things, uh, give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word, uh, and make us to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. Uh, make us grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ because we spent this time here. Transform us by the renewing of our minds. And we pray that you might even convert the lost, for it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to look <coughs> briefly at our text. We're not going to cover every, every possible thing in it, but we're going to look at at least three things, Lord willing, this morning. We're going to look at first the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, secondly, the destruction. I thought about saying incineration uh, for, a play, for a play on words, but I thought, thought better of it. Uh, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and then the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. So the first thing that we're going to look at and be clear about is the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now you might think that that seems awfully obvious, and in many ways you are right to think that. You might think that why would this have to take the time of, of an extended discussion or point in a sermon, and you wouldn't be wrong to think that that shouldn't have to be the case. Uh, but I think even even now in our day especially, we have to be clear on these things. Um, if you've had any interaction uh, with those uh, in well, you know of, of that persuasion of those who would seek, even those who would seek to just minimize uh, the the sinfulness of homosexuality. You have probably heard one of the, one of the main talking points uh, that they often give about why God condemned the cities of the plain that is Sodom and Gomorrah. In other words, very often one of their tactics, one of their talking points, is to say, "Well, strangely enough, they don't deny that it happened." I've never heard someone say, "Well, that didn't actually happen in these discussions." But what they say is, "That's not the sin for which God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah." To which if you've ever had this conversation, you think, okay, hit me. You know, what, what, what is it? Why did God, that, that's pretty extreme. I don't know about you, I've never seen a city turned to ash from, by fire from heaven. So it must have been pretty bad, whatever it was. Do you know, have you heard what they say the sin was? They say it's a lack of hospitality. I'm not kidding. I'm not joking. They, they, they say in some ways it was a lack of hospitality that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, remember the story in Genesis 19, the angelic visitors, they visit Abraham, and, and God says, should I, am I, should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Uh, and then Abraham has this, uh, read this in Genesis 18, this kind of bargaining, a holy bargaining in prayer with God where you know, he obviously told him what he's going to do or Abraham put the dots together. And, and, and he said, well, wait a minute, you know, far be it from you to destroy the righteous with the wicked. Shall not the judge of the earth do what's right? And he says, what if there's 50 righteous men in Sodom and Gomorrah? Will you still destroy it? And, you know, we might have been, if you've never read it, I recommend you read it on your own this afternoon. But God's, God very quickly says, nope, you know, if, if, uh, if I find 50, I won't destroy it. And you and I might have expected, if we'd never read it before, Abraham to say, Whew, oh, good, okay, God, boy, I'm glad. You know, I thought for a minute there, I thought you were going to do something that wouldn't be undone. And that, no, Abraham's like, wait, 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 wait a minute. You know, forgive me for speaking out of turn. I'm paraphrasing. What if there's only 45? And God very quickly says, nope, if there's 45, I won't do it. 
And Abraham did not go, he said, oh, okay, what if, what if there's 35? What if there's 30? What if there's 20? And it goes down, 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 I think it was to 10. In a city of who knows how many thousands of people, God says, you know, he stopped at 10, and it's almost as if Abraham was afraid to go further down the list in, in number. And so what, what happened? Those angelic visitors that appeared as men went to Sodom. They went to Lot's house. In mercy, they went to Lot's house. Uh, they were going to sleep out in the open in the town. And Lot said, no, 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 you, you, you know, you're not from here. Yeah, you can't do that. That's not going to work. He brings him in his house. And what happens? The, the, you know, according to these apologists, they'll say, well, somebody else should have taken them in. They should have treated them nicer. They should have brought them, you know, brought them dinner or something. No, they, they, they did far worse, as you know, from the text. And we'll read that in a little bit. Uh, but the sin that they had done was in no way a lack of hospitality. God did not turn the cities of the plain to ash over a town not being friendly enough. Uh, that is not uh, in any way what happened. So uh, I hope that idea is as ridiculous to you as it sounds. Uh, but don't be surprised if you're talking to someone and they actually bring that talking point up. Here is what it says uh, in, in our text, uh, verses 7 through 10. Uh, Peter writes, And if he, that is God, if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly, as he did with Lot. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Peter wasn't confused about Genesis 19. And we're going to see later on, Jude also was not confused about Genesis 19 and what happened. Now remember, back in Genesis 18.20, uh, we are told the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, this is God talking, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and he adds, and their sin is very grave or very grievous. All sin is bad. This particular one that came up before God, God himself calls grave or grievous. Their sin was so grievous that God rained down fire from heaven and destroyed everyone living in those cities. Genesis 19 verses 4 to 5 says this of Lot's angelic visitors. So remember, uh, Lot tells them, no, you can't stay in town. Come in my house quick, shut the door kind of thing. Uh, roll them up. He says uh, there, it, Genesis 19, 4 to 5 says, but before they lay down, so it's bedtime. They're, they're getting ready to go to bed. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, and listen to this, all the people to the last man. Remember that bargaining that Abram did with God? It sounds like a, like, a, like a, one of those auctions, 50, 45, 40, 35, like going the wrong direction, right? The next chapter says, to the last man. Everyone. How many was God going to find that were righteous in the town? You, you could say lot, but in, in some ways, none, right? It says, down to the last man, what did they do? Surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, their neighbor, right? Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. 
you, you probably know that the word no in certain contexts in Scripture has a, a sexual overtone. So a man knows, you know, Adam knew his wife and she begat children, these kind of things. That's what's being discussed here in this, in this text. Does that sound like a lack of hospitality to you? No. Did the Lord turn the cities of the plain and all their inhabitants to ash because of a lack of hospitality? No, of course not. All the men of the city were seeking to, there's no nice way of putting this, to, to rape these people they thought were mere men. That is how utterly depraved and perverted things had gotten in Sodom and Gomorrah. That is how, it's hard for us to imagine that we, you know, we might talk about certain places, certain cities we know that are known for these things. It's hard to imagine this level of, of depravity. And God is, the, God is the just judge of all the earth who always does what's right. He did what he did with good reason. There's a good reason why the names of those cities, especially Sodom, is so, is so closely associated with depravity and perversion and with the sin of homosexuality. It's not an accident. Uh, Jude 7 says much the same thing. Remember, Jude is only one chapter long, so we don't say Jude 1, 7. We just say Jude 7. This is what Jude says. It almost looks like he was copying you know, Peter's work. He says... Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Jude is saying the same thing that Peter was saying. They were probably dealing with the same false teaching that was infiltrating the church in the first century that led to these kinds of sins and accommodated them. Um, how did... How does confusion on such things as this happen, especially in the church? It's one thing for the world to be confused out there. How, how does this kind of thing take root in the church? Now, you and I, you know, I, I, the older I get, the more I sound like I'm getting older. And I say, oh, back in the good old days. And for me, I'm like, oh, back in the 80s. We, we were watching a show with Luke last night, uh, watching old black and white reruns of Dennis the Menace which he finds extremely hilarious. And I find myself, when I was a kid, I thought it was all funny. When I'm an adult, I'm like, oh, no, don't do that. You know, why would you do that kind of thing? But we were, I was commenting with my family last night that, you know, they used to have shows on TV you could watch with your kids. And, and then you could still watch with your kids. And I said, you know, 40 years from now, nobody's going to watch the junk that's on TV today. They're certainly not going to watch it with their, with their kids. It's not going to be any kind of classic television from, from our day in this particular time. But, um, you know, the older I get, as I was saying, the more I look around and, you know, I feel like, like I'm getting old. I'm, kind of, I'm that guy shouting at the clouds and saying, get off my lawn and all these things. And I just think things are just worse and worse. But in some ways, they are getting worse and worse. But one of the things that we sometimes are tempted to think of is to say, well, things have never been this bad before. We are the first generation. We don't say this out loud, but we sort of think it a little bit. We're the first people that have ever had to deal with such a thing. And no wonder the church wasn't equipped in our day because no one before us has ever dealt with such an awful, awful thing. But it's just not true, is it? In fact, Peter, in the first few verses we read in Second Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 3, listen to what he says again, verses 1 through 3 of our text. But false teachers also arose, past tense, among the people. He's talking about the people of Israel. Just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, 
bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. In other words, as bad as things may seem to us, I'm not saying they aren't bad, this isn't some new thing. Peter says in the first century, when the, the church's earliest days, hey, we're, he's pointing back to the days before them. He's saying, you remember the, the Israelites and all the false prophets they had to deal with, including immorality and things like this? He says, guess what? The same thing happens in our day. It's going to happen in our day now. False teachers will come in. They'll kind of sneak into the church. They'll worm their way into the church uh, with, deceptive, with deceptive words. He says they will secretly bring in destructive heresies. What, what does that mean? It means they don't, they don't come right on and say what they mean. They have to use you know, the, the, the word uh, for the words that, that uh, it says exploit you with false words. The idea, it's a strange sounding word in the Greek. It, it sounds like he's saying they'll exploit you with plastic words. In other words, they'll, they'll kind of form and mess with the words to kind of get around your defenses. And it's also a word that has to do with, with the marketplace. Like they'll make market, they'll make uh, commerce off of you by, by using these kinds of words to get you to, to, to let your defenses down and listen to what they are saying and accept it. So even in John's day and in, P in Peter's day in the first century, these things were happening. So in that, in that regard, uh, this is not some new, unique problem to our own, our own day, and we need to learn the lessons that John and Peter and Jude have to teach us about, about these things. Uh, Peter warned us far ahead of time to be prepared, that we should be prepared for such things. There have always been false prophets and false teachers harassing the church. There will always be, until the Lord comes back, false teachers who will seek in all kinds of ways to worm their way into the church. And, you know, it, it's a sad thing to say, but many of the churches that you and I think of as, I don't know what word you use, liberal, progressive, whatever, you know, the churches that, that we look at now, we drive by them and go, oh, man, you know, the word of God is not being taught there at all. They're teaching all kinds of heretical things. Chances are those churches used to be solid until somebody wormed their way in and was given a foothold and taught these kinds of destructive heresies among the church. And notice what Paul, what Paul, what, what Peter says there. They're teaching what he calls destructive heresies. These aren't small things. These aren't nothing. They're, these aren't little issues that don't have anything to do with anything. They are, they are heresies. He doesn't beat around the bush to call it that. A heresy is, a heresy is not a, a difference of opinion. It's not eschatology. You know, like sometimes we say, well... This sounds a little inside baseball. You can ignore this. But, you know, sometimes we pastors get together. Uh, maybe you do this, too, and say, oh, you know, what's your view on the end times? Oh, I'm amillennial. What about you? Oh, I'm postmillennial. Oh, I'm this, I'm that. And we, you know, ha-ha, well, well, you're dumb. And, you know, we, we disagree on things. This isn't that. Like, this is heresy. This is, you know, in, you know when Jonathan this morning led us in the recitation of the Nicene Creed, when you say something is heresy, you're saying it is contrary to and even hostile to the essential truths of the faith. That's what a heresy is. And that's what, that's what Peter says this kind of thing 
is. It's something that is contrary to the faith and even hostile to the Christian faith. And not just that, it is destructive, these kinds of teachings. It's like a plague of locusts to keep the Old Testament themes going. These kind of teachings that we might kind of, well, how bad could it be? What's the harm in this kind of thing? They do great harm, these things do, to the souls of men and women, especially those who follow after them. And to make it even worse, such false teaching as this and its effects on the morality of professing Christians to such a degree that it says the way of truth is blasphemed. When, when professing believers follow these things and actually live them out and fly their pea flags and whatnot, it, it brings blasphemy on the faith. How often, if you think about this, how often are you and I told that what consenting adults do in their privacy of their homes doesn't affect or hurt anyone? That's another one of the talking points that you often hear. Well, I, I, I defy anyone to read Genesis 19 and tell me that that didn't hurt their neighbors. What did God do to that city, to those cities of the plain? Unrepentant immorality, like all sin, leads to death and judgment. And in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, it led to those cities being turned to ash by fire from heaven. Sins such as these are so grievous in the sight of God that he may eventually, because of these things, judge a place, whether a city or a nation, with destruction. They may not be, take the same form as Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction, but destruction just the same. Does that, does that sound harmless to you? I hope not. Or do we think that God has changed? Do we think that God is no longer holy? Here's a, here's a litmus test question for you to consider on your own. Do we somehow believe that God no longer judges nations or places for wickedness and sin? If you believe he doesn't, then you believe God has changed. And God does not change. His ways of doing things have not changed, essentially. God still judges nations. In some ways, I think we're seeing evidence of God judging our own land in many ways in our day. Pray for God to grant repentance and revival. Well, the second thing, not just the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, but the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah that we need to look at. Look at again at verse 6. Peter says, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction or destruction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. How seriously does God take such sin? It's not a trick question. What did God do when this sin took such a complete hold upon a place as it did in Sodom and Gomorrah? What did God do? He destroyed it in a dramatic and violent fashion. Again, Genesis 19, verses 23 to 28, he says... The sun had risen on the earth, so it's first thing in the morning, when Lot came to Zoar. Remember, uh, the Lord, by those angels, made Lot leave. They, they practically had to drag him out of the city because he was waffling. They're like, God's going to destroy this place. You need to go and go now. And when they waffled, they grabbed them by the hands and dragged them out and told them not to look back. It says, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities. 
and what grew on the ground. It's like nothing left. It sounds like a nuclear bomb went off or something. Like there's nothing. No people, no grass, no plants. And it says, but Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became what? A pillar of salt. God told him, don't even look back. Run, run to the hills. Run for your life as if your life depends on it. And she disobeyed and became a pillar of salt. And then it says, and Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Remember that, that bargaining with God? He went back to the spot that he had met with God. And it says, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. It's, it's hard to imagine what that must have looked like. Isn't it? The Lord utterly destroyed those cities, all the cities around it, all the valley, all the inhabitants, and even what grew on the ground. There was nothing left. It was complete and utter devastation. Now, we might be uncomfortable with that. I think Rob was reading uh, last week or week before about, about the destruction of you know, Jericho and I. We might read God's judgments and, oh, God sounds very harsh. We might be very uncomfortable with these things. But think about this. Is this earthly destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, this fire from heaven, is this not a picture of the eternal condemnation of the wicked and unrepentant in hell itself? What is hell described as in the book of Revelation? A lake of what? A lake of fire. And, you know, sometimes we look at that, but, well, it's not really a literal lake and all these things. Uh, Thomas Watson, my favorite Puritan, said of that, uh, that all, all earthly actual fire, you know, actual fire compared to the fires of hell is as a painting of fire. In other words, it's, it's, we, our minds can't wrap themselves around what it actually is, and this is the best that we can understand of what it would be. He's saying, well, hell, compared to hell, all actual fire is like a painting of fire. It's like painted fire that you would never be worried about touching. It's not even hot compared to it. Peter himself in the very next chapter of this letter says this, uh, by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire or reserved for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Second Peter 3, 7 the Apostle Paul says this, 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-10, Since indeed God considers it just or righteous to repay with affliction those who afflict you, the church, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, here it is, in flaming fire, inflicting, inflicting rather, vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. We may react at times with horror, as I said, from some of these earthly judgments of the Lord. And, and there's nothing wrong with reading that text and kind of shuddering, thinking, well, I can't imagine what that must have, have been like. Some professing believers seem so embarrassed by them that they seek to explain them away in order to try to minimize the offense. 
You know, it's, I don't think it's an accident that in our text, Peter mentions three very you know, public, well-known judgments of God in the past in history. Casting the angels down who rebelled. The worldwide flood in Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't think it's an accident that many, uh, you know, many professing, uh, I would say liberal, unbelieving, professing Christians, uh, often, what do they do? They deny the flood. Oh, that couldn't have happened. It, you know, it had to be a localized flood, all these things. It couldn't possibly, God couldn't possibly have stamped out with a flood everybody on the earth except Noah and these animals. And they, they give various reasons for why they couldn't possibly believe that, that God, who could do all things, could possibly have done that and started over with, with, uh, with Noah and his family. But in some ways, I think the reason why they actually object to it is different than that. I think many ways it's, it's kind of another version. No, they wouldn't probably admit this, but what did, what did Satan say in the Garden of Eden when he was tempting Eve? He questioned God's word. Then one of the things he said when Eve said, oh, no, God said we can't have that one or we'll die. What did he say to Eve? You will not surely die. What did God say? In the day you eat of it, you will surely die if, when you sin. And the serpent, as he always does, this is his message in every way possible. Those destructive heresies in some way, shape, or form all boil down to you will surely not die. God's, God's kidding. It's an empty threat. That's what liberal Christianity professes. Oh, no, no, we all go to heaven when we die, isn't it? It's another version of you will not surely die, and it's the same thing that many question these events, the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah, all, really that's what they're getting at. They want you to believe that God does not judge the wicked. But I'll say this. These things are just a faint picture. Those judgments are a faint picture of the judgment to come on the last day when the Lord Jesus, as we just confessed this morning in the Nicene Creed, will come again with glory, in glory to judge the living and the dead. And I'll say this. We as believers, you know, we, we want to be nice people, right? We want to be agreeable people, but we do no one any favors. It is not loving at all when we cave into the pressure of the world around us or to the influence of false teachers in the church in such a way that we minimize or explain away either the grievousness of those sins that God calls an abomination or the severity of his just judgments against them. We're not doing anybody any favors when we do that. We're not being nice when we do that. We are not being loving in any way when we do that. We're certainly not loving God and his word when we do that. And what do I mean by that? I'm, I'm not good at illustrations, but I'll, 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 give, I'll give it a shot. What would you think of a doctor? Of a doctor who lied to a patient who had a terminal illness and told him, hey, your checkup was fine. You're going to be fine. Why don't you plan a vacation next month? You know, do whatever you feel like doing. What would you think of a doctor that did that? What would you think of a doctor who, let's say somebody has cancer, terminal cancer, and this doctor has a cure for it, but he doesn't want to offend them by telling them that they have cancer, so, well, he'll just not mention that part and not give them the cure. That's what we do in some ways when we do these kinds of things. We're more worried about offending them than them offending God. 
That's really what we're doing. We don't think that's what we're doing, but that's what we're doing. How much worse is it for us who know the truth of Scripture to explain away or minimize the sins of those around us, especially of those whom we love, for fear of offending them, rather than them having offended God and bringing judgment upon themselves in their unrepentance? We're not doing them any favors. The most loving thing we can do, what does the Bible say? Speak the truth in what? In love. Not just love and not just speak the truth in a harsh, unloving manner. Both. You can do both. Speak the truth in love. Firmly, but in love. Well, the last thing that brings us to is what what Peter says in our text, and that is the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, The example of it, look at verse 6 again. He says that by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes when he, he condemned, he, that is God, condemned them to extinction. And here it is, making them, Sodom and Gomorrah, an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Do you see what happens according to Peter when you downplay these things? You take the thing that God put as a, as a, as a billboard, as a warning sign of judgment to come, and you say, eh, you know, well, not that bad. Not, really isn't something to worry about. Maybe it didn't even happen. Maybe this wasn't what they did. Um, that we're, that's what we're doing. We're saying that we're, we're taking the example God gave them and watering it down and rendering it less effective. Again, Jude verse 7 says almost the exact same thing, doesn't he? He says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires. Here it is serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. It's an example. It's God made literally an example of them for others, for us to heed. You ever hear that, you know, we always talk about it's better to learn from somebody else's mistakes than learn from your own. Well, it's even more the case when it comes to these kinds of things. Think about this. God's severity and judgment towards Sodom and Gomorrah is in some ways a mercy and kindness toward all who will heed the example and warning of that judgment. It's as if it were a flashing red warning light standing in the way of danger if we would just heed it. You know, it's like there's a, you know, there's a, we have a storm coming supposedly, and let's say there's a huge storm and a bridge is out. And there's a red flashing light saying, stop, don't proceed. And many are just driving right off, right off the bridge into the water. The city of Sodom and Gomorrah serves as an example to say, stop. Don't go any further. Turn back. Turn from your sin and turn back to God. Warnings of judgment are often implied offers of mercy to those who will repent and believe on Christ for salvation. That was the lesson of the prophet Jonah, wasn't it? I won't re-preach the whole book of Jonah again, but it's a very short book, four chapters long. You could read it over lunch if you really wanted to do so. Remember what, Jonah, what, what God told Jonah to do? Same kind of situation as Sodom and Gomorrah. The cries have come up to me. Their sins have you know, come up to here. I'm paraphrasing, right? And he says, go there and preach against that great city. The message Jonah was given was what? It, what the version we have in the scriptures is rather short. Yet 40 days and God is going to destroy you. 
Same kind of picture as Sodom. And we don't know what the means would have been fire from heaven. We don't know. But something, God was going to do something, and he gave them a 40 days notice. And Jonah's like, nope, not going to do that. Right? And God says, yep, you're going to do that. Right? And so he goes, Jonah did not come into town saying, there's mercy to be had. God, you know, God's going to show mercy on you. Just stop what you're doing. Repent. Turn. He says the message God gave him, 40 days and judgment's coming. And what happened? God granted repentance. God granted revival. The whole, the whole city from the king on down repented in sackcloth and ashes. And Jonah was mad. Because Jonah was like, I, he says, is this not what I said was going to happen? I knew you were going to do this. If God wanted to judge Nineveh, that's all he wanted to do, would he have to send Jonah at all? No. If he just wanted to flatten him like a pancake, he just does it. And yet he sent Jonah to preach to them, and Jonah knew it. Jonah's like, this is exactly what I knew you were going to do. It's, it's the only time in Scripture I can think of where a man complains about the grace of God. He says, is this not what I said when I was still in my town, that you're a gracious God showing, you know. He's like, I knew you were going to do this kind of thing because the message of judgment is meant to be a warning uh, shot across the bow to turn people from their sin. The message he was given literally was one just of judgment and condemnation. And yet what happened? They repented and God showed mercy and turned to him. The judgment that was, that was warned about was probably something very similar to what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now of this particular sin and God's dealings with it, what does Paul say? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9-11, to 11, listen to this text and let it sink in. He says, he admonishes us, he says, Or do you not know, talking to the church, right? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. What's the implication? There's always a temptation and false teaching they're trying to deceive. Don't let someone deceive you. Do not be deceived. Then he says, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Period. If this is you and you are unrepentant of these things, what is he saying? You may call yourself a Christian, but what does Paul say? You're not going to inherit the kingdom of God if this is how you're living. In an unrepentant fashion. But then what does he say in verse 11? But. But you. Talking to the church. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the spirit of God. He says do not be deceived. Many will tell you that you can just go on and on in your sins. And all will be well. And that we all just go to heaven when we die. Paul tells us differently. He says the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. The sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, the effeminate, sodomites, drunkards, and the like. If they remain unrepentant, regardless of what they profess to believe, what does Paul say to them? You will not inherit. You're not going to heaven. You're not right with the Lord. Yet, right? But then, he, then, but what does he say in verse eleven? Such were past tense. Such were some of you. 
there were some in the church in Corinth who could read that list of sins I just read to you a moment ago that Paul mentions in verses 9 to 10 and say to themselves, that was me. Every sin on that list, including effeminate and sodomite and adulterer and all these things, every one of those sins there were people in the church who now believed in Christ and were saved by the grace of God that could look back and go, that was me. We, we tend to think, oh, I know somebody else, not me. That that's, they were like, that was me and God saved me by his grace. That was them before they came to Christ by faith. Some of them in the church, imagine a church like this is the way it should be in some ways. Some of them used to be fornicators, adulterers, idolaters, drunkards, and even effeminate and sodomites. But what happened? God wonderfully saved them by his grace in his son. And those people who once were lost in the kinds of sins for which Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed were now trophies of God's grace. Conquered and freed by the gospel of Christ. Probably everybody in this room knows somebody that fits that description. That you can think of and say, this person was living this way and least likely to be saved, you know, would have been the, the thing over their head in the picture in the dictionary. But look what God did. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says, came to seek and save the lost. He came to save sinners, even sinners like those. Even sinners like us. God in his mercy grants repentance and faith in Christ, even to such as these, so that they can say that they are no longer those things anymore. Such were some of you, he says, but they were washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That same grace and mercy is offered in the gospel to all who will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when Rob was up, he kept pointing to the table, this reminder of what Christ did to save us. Um, Jesus died on the cross and took the wrath of God upon himself for our sins, for the sins of all who will believe, so that we might be freely forgiven of our sins and reconciled forever to God. And so while this, this particular subject, uh, you may be saying to yourself, well, that's not my sin. That's not, that's not something I've ever, ever done or had to deal with or have to repent of. But have you repented of your sins, whatever they may be? Have you turned your life from your life of sin and turned to Christ by faith for salvation? If you have, praise the Lord for his mercies. It's only by the grace and mercy of God that you had your eyes opened, were given new life from the dead, and were granted repentance and saving faith. On our own, none of us do that. But God's the one who grants it. And if not, if you have not yet turned to Christ by faith and turned from your sin, turn to Christ today and live, even as those people in Corinth did where, they, where Paul could say, such were some of you. Uh, the offer of, of salvation is free to all who will believe. Amen.